You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. This morning is part three in our series called VBS for Heretics that for those of you unfamiliar with the acronym VBS, it means Vacation Bible School, and it's something that a lot of us grew up going to as kids, and so we like to problematize the term here <laughs> at Central. So this is called Vacation Bible School for Heretics, True Myths is the name of the series, and today we're looking at the story of Noah's Ark. I've never spoken on Noah's. I checked my notes. 14 years of sermons. I've never preached on Noah's Ark here, um, which is a classic vacation Bible school story. How many of you grew up going to VBS or Sunday school and hearing about the story of Noah's Ark? So many VBS themes right, built around this story, which is really bizarre because it's a story, it's an incredibly tragic story. It's not a children's story. <laughs> story about how God drowned every child in the world, along with most of the animals. Um, it's a story about, it's a terrible story about a terrible God. I'll just be really upfront about that. We're told in the story, and it's four chapters long, so I'm not going to read it to you. It'll take 20 minutes. You can go read it yourself if you want, Genesis 6 through 10, respectively. It's a story and I'll just briefly summarize it. We're told God is so angry about human wickedness that he decides that he regrets, actually, we're told. He regrets making us. We're told God never makes mistakes, but here we find God saying, I made a mistake. Should never have made this species. And so I'm going to wipe them out, along with all the animals, save a few that I'll reseed the earth with. So God is so angry about our wickedness that he decides to wipe humanity out and most of the animals on earth because everything is corrupt in his eyes. But he doesn't want to just exterminate everything and everyone. Rather, he wants to start over and reseed the earth with Noah and his family and the select group of animals supposedly on the ark. Noah and his family were chosen because they were the only righteous people left on earth, we're told. After the flood, Noah plants a vineyard and gets blind drunk which is a fascinating, strange ending to this story. It's like Noah was so traumatized by the events that escaping into alcohol was his only way to cope. In fact, this is actually the inspiration. This part of the story is actually the inspiration for a parable that a friend of mine and a scholar once wrote. His name is Tad DeLay. He spoke here before. And I just want to paraphrase this parable for you here this morning. It's called Noah and his God. I think this is a great illustration for what's wrong with this story. So here it, here it is. Noah wasn't quite the same after the great flood. He couldn't tell his family of his depression and self-hate. They praised him constantly for being the savior of humankind, but he didn't feel that way, not even close. He told himself he was a good person, but the screams of innocent children in the water still haunted his dreams. Wine solved most of his troubles and kept him numb most of the time. It worked until it didn't work. And when it didn't work, he would ask himself, 
who strikes a deal to save only his family? And with what devil did I strike this deal with? He had never before felt such joy as he did on the day when the floodwaters came. And all those who mocked him for building this ark began screaming and clawing at the hall, trying to get on board. When he thinks back on his Schadenfreude that day, he hates himself for it. And he asks himself, what kind of man rejoices in such suffering and loss of life? And what kind of God rejoices with him? The God of wine was Noah's only company now, and he worshiped that God often until he felt and remembered nothing. That parable kind of gets to the heart of why I find this story so troubling. It's a terrible story about a terrible God that we should categorically reject. This, this is the proper theological response, I believe, to such a God. Atheism can be the proper theological response to such gods. We should all be atheists of such a god. In fact, I would say the most Christian and moral thing to do is to reject such a god, to not believe in such a god. I have a friend who likes to say, Perhaps God is testing us with these stories in the Bible to see who really has the moral courage and the spiritual maturity to not believe in this God, to reject these stories as good, or the God of these stories as just. Now, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe God put these stories in the scriptures uh, to test us, but I find that idea deliciously subversive. <laughs> I think it's important to point out just how different the God found in the Noah's Ark story is from the God revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and in the stories of the Gospels. Can you imagine Jesus calling down fire or floodwaters from heaven in order to drown his enemies, to say nothing of innocent children as collateral damage? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the same Jesus doing this, who said things like, love your enemies. Don't return insult for insult or evil for evil, but bless those who curse you. This is the same Jesus who, even when those nasty Romans were nailing him to the cross, were crucifying him, even then, we're told, he prayed for them and forgave them. He didn't call down fire from heaven, the floodwaters to sweep them away. He forgave them. This is a radically different depiction of the deity in the Gospels compared to Genesis. The God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth is very different than the God revealed in the Genesis flood story. And that's okay. That's all right. The Bible is complex and it's imperfect. It's a work of human hands. It is a reflection of ancient people doing their best to understand who God was and who they were in relationship to God in the Bronze Age and in the late Iron Age at the time in which they were living. 
And, and we're a reflection of that now. We're not perfect. We're just like them. We're just doing our best. And we get it wrong sometimes, and that's okay. That's the human story. That's, that's, the, that's our story with God, how we wrestle with God like Jacob. But the point is we, we get to choose. We get to choose what God we want to believe in. So let's choose wisely. The Bible is not univocal. It's not perfectly consistent with its depiction of the deity. We must therefore read with wisdom and understanding. Now that I've explained why I don't like this story, I want to take, I'm going to pivot from that and say why I still find this story fascinating and important for its literary, uh, its psychological, and even historical point of view. Nine versions of this story exist that we know of around ancient Mesopotamia, each more or less adapted from an earlier version, probably from the year, around the year 1600 BCE. The first version we think came from the ancient city of Sumer, which was located in present-day Iraq. In the oldest version, and, and in most of the subsequent versions, the hero builds a boat, builds an ark to preserve their own life and that of their family or community and the lives of many animals. That's found in all these versions. And this is caused when the God, when God or the gods decide to essentially destroy all living things on earth because of wickedness. Again, this is the basic plot line of the various flood stories that we find in the ancient Near East, and they all predate the Genesis account. The Epic of Gilgamesh being the most similar to the Genesis story, uh, and I'll just share some of the similarities here. In both stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Genesis story, God or the gods decide to destroy humanity because of its wickedness. A righteous man was chosen and directed to build an ark to save a select group of people and some animals. In both stories, birds are released at the end when the boat comes to rest. Birds are released to find land. Both arks, we're told, come to rest on mountaintops. Once the human occupants disembark, they offer sacrifices to their god or the gods. And finally, in both stories, god or the gods promise to never destroy humanity again with a flood. So lots of similarities here, right? Most scholars understand this to mean that the ancient Hebrews, like most of their neighbors, retold this story in their own culture and in the context of their own religions. But the Genesis account was not the original version, is not the first version. Um, but here's where things get really interesting. The story is not entirely mythological. It's believed that's actually founded on an actual historical event, some kind of massive flood that took place in the ancient Near East, not a, not a global flood, of course, because we have no evidence of that, nor is such a global flood physically possible. However, there was a highly localized deluge, it's believed. In the year 1997, so not that long ago, researchers discovered evidence of a massive flood that occurred around the Black Sea region 
about 7,600 years ago when the last glaciers were still melting or finishing their melting. It's believed that a massive rise in sea level caused the Mediterranean Sea to breach a landmass that separated the Mediterranean Sea from the Black Sea called the Bosphorus. This, this breach reached 10 cubic miles of water a day. It released 10 cubic miles of water a day into the Black Sea. To give you an idea what that would look like, imagine 200 Niagara Falls all going off at the same time at full spate for a year. It's an astonishing, cataclysmic amount of water. And it's believed that it caused the shoreline of the Black Sea to rise so quickly that it laid waste to countless villages and settlements and even cities. It must have seemed like the end of the world in that region. Absolutely cataclysmic. And of course, these stories, these myths, grew up around this actual historical event. In other words, these myths are based on a real world event. And I think this is often the case. Many of the stories we find in the Bible and in other sacred texts, yes, they're legendary and they're fantastical on the surface, but underneath, these stories are actually often based on some real world events. The legendary and the mythological aspects, I think, were often created as ways of coping with, understanding, and assigning meaning to real events that troubled these ancient people or shocked them. This is a very human tendency. This is a very human reaction. When we are confronted with profound or frightening events, we, we of course, look for reasons why it happened. Do we not? It's the way our brains work. We're, we have these problem-solving brains. We look for patterns. We look for meaning. That's a natural thing our brains do. We, we generally hate and resist this idea that terrible things happen for no reason. Simply because of nature. Simply because of randomness and time and chance. What we often fear more than terrible events themselves is the idea that they are utterly inexplicable and random, and we are powerless to stop them. I think, I think that actually scares us more than the events themselves sometimes. It's often the case that we'd rather believe that there is a deity up there punishing us for our sins with a flood or hurricane, an earthquake, wildfires in Maui, a disease, a pandemic, whatever. We, we'd rather believe that there is someone in control up there who is punishing us for our sins rather than confront the, the terrifying idea that, that there's pure chaos, that there's randomness, that there's time and chance, and no one's in control. We are exposed, we are vulnerable to time and chance, to pure randomness. That I think that idea scares us, terrifies us. And so we... We, we create these, these gods in order to explain these events because it at least gives us a sense that someone's in control. Okay, even if that deity is brutal and capricious and drowns children, at least he's in control. And if we just placate him and behave ourselves, well, then maybe the floods and the hurricanes and the wildfires and the pandemics won't come. 
Yeah, he's brutal. Yeah, he's vindictive. But you know, we can kind of manage him because we can watch our P's and Q's at least and thereby control nature. We control this God by placating him with sacrifices and worship, then we can control our lives. We can control nature. You can see why these myths develop. There were human ways of grappling with the inexplicable and the pure randomness of nature, and finding, finding some kind of psychological relief from it by saying, ah, it's because the gods are punishing us. I think that in a very broad sense is, is what the story of Noah's Ark is about and what the other Mesopotamian deluge myths were created for. But again, as I said earlier, the story of Jesus, I think, really stands in contrast to this story in more ways than one. It's not just that the God revealed in Jesus is a nicer and better God than the one from the story in Genesis, but that the story of Jesus, I think, fundamentally changes the way that we think about suffering and God's power in the world. The story of Jesus is at least in part, I believe, a story about how God himself, God himself is at the mercy of this chaotic, godless world. At the cross, we find God himself suffering and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you in the midst of my sufferings in this world? Where are you, God of power and might? Where are you? How strange. What, what could it mean that God himself and the persona of Jesus of Nazareth is crying out to God? God is despairing of God. What a paradoxical, strange idea. For me, I think this means that we must change the way that we think of God and God's power in the world. The God revealed in the suffering and crucified Christ is not all-powerful, in my opinion, at least not the way that we understand power. We, we human be beings like to think of power as strength and might, the power to overcome, you know, the power of magic and, you know, these kinds of ideas of power, physical power, the force, right? But the kind of power revealed in Jesus is not that kind of power. The power revealed in Christ is not the power to magically control the world and overcome all suffering. This, to me, is a misconstruing of God's power and a human way of understanding power. God's power instead is revealed in the suffering Christ, in the so-called weak powers of love and compassion and humility and self-sacrifice. This is true power, in my estimation. The power of a crucified God, the power of a kingdom not built on strength and might and wealth and violence and force, which is the way the kingdoms of this world are built, the kingdom of empire. Rather, the kingdom of God revealed in Christ is a kingdom built on the so-called weak powers. And I'm putting weak in scare quotes because I don't really mean weak. The so-called weak powers of love, humility, compassion, self-sacrifice, care for the powerless and the oppressed, solidarity with the powerless and the poor and the outcasts and all the weak and powerless ones of the world. 
That's God's power revealed in the suffering, meek and mild, crucified Christ. And it means as Christians, I think we have to shift our understanding of power. We speak of God's power. I want to finish today by suggesting we're faced with a similar situation as the ancients were who wrote these flood myths. Now, the flood myth is about climate catastrophe. It's about an ecological crisis on a global scale, right? What just happened this week in Maui is absolutely related to climate change. Our oceans are warming and they are rising and threatening to flood into our cities and coastlines and displace some, somewhere in the next few decades or this century. The oceans are going to displace probably millions of people. It's going to flood cities and settlements and villages all around the world, thus causing starvation and migration and disease and a host of related problems that will probably kill millions. It's not God or the gods that are punishing us for our ecological sins, but in a way, Mother Nature is, in fact, we think of Mother Nature as a god. Mother Nature is punishing us for our ecological sins, for pumping the atmosphere full of carbon for generations. Maybe the story of Noah's Ark can be read today as a cautionary tale of what happens when we sin against Mother Nature. We have flooded the atmosphere with carbon for generations, and now she's angry, and the floodwaters are coming. And our children and our grandchildren are going to be the ones to pay for it. It's a sad, it's a very sad tale. But that's how I read this story today. And with that, I want to open it up for dialogue, for conversation. Um, we do that every week here. If you have any questions about this, any comments about this story, um, anything goes. Yeah, anybody this morning? Yeah, I know you. <laughs> All right, mine's not a question. It's actually just a funny story. Oh, okay. All right. Funny stories um, work. Lighten the mood in here a little bit after I just said the world's in. Yeah, good. When uh, we were pregnant with our first child, my parents were trying to figure out like how we were going to approach things with our children and religion and what, you know, they could share and not share and gifts and things like that and my mom was like I mean can we can we get the baby like a Noah's Ark toy or a book and Aaron was like yeah of course he was like but I want to make sure that it would be accurate he was like like it needs to have the claw marks on the door of all the millions of people that were and he just like was going on this like random my mom was finally like, just never mind yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that happened that has my dark sense of humor i guess and, you know, my mother-in-law it's a good story yeah. i was actually thinking about telling that story in my search so thank you yeah good um uh, somebody else have a story uh their experience with this story growing up maybe or now or any questions about it or comments yeah emily another emily 
Emily, would you pass it to uh, Marsha or, and then Anda? Thank you. Thanks. Um, no, I, I don't have a story about as a kid. I mean, I had the book. It you had the super book. cool. It was like had like touch things like this was furry and this felt like this. Oh, and the animals going you know, under the arc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so of course they make it cool, right? Yeah. Like, oh, this is so cool. Except it's just like a lot of other hi our history, American history, it's only told from one standpoint. So it's not being told by the person who was drowning in their own home with the love of their life, or you know what I mean? Like, so it's it's just terrible. Um, and what if we told, like, what if there's a negative side of the Bible? Like, what if we created a book that was literally all of the other side of every story? Like the people who did, weren't the hero, the people who didn't, you know, get healed, the people, you know. Um, but Diane and I were just talking about yesterday because of our friend's dad that passed away and... <clears throat> We went to a birthday party of a girl whose sister and her sister's boyfriend were killed in a car accident that I've prayed for many times here. Um, Monica, and it's just like, I think the thing I come up with is like, so if divine intervention doesn't exist, right? We're not being saved by a car accident, obviously. Um, is this randomness? Like, you know how, like, I gave a stupid thing where it's like you throw a dart and it splits something in half. And the chances of that happening is like one in a billion or whatever. That randomness can happen to us. And do we see that randomness as divine intervention? Just like Diana was saying, like, you choose, basically these people are choosing to believe that it was divine intervention that saved their life or whatever. You know, they got in a car accident and their car was a ball of metal, but they walked away. Does that make sense? But then I'm like, so who, what are some people are like, well, that was random. Like that could have happened to anyone. You're the one in the billion or some people see it as divine intervention. Like God saved my life. And now I'm going to dedicate my life to Christianity and blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah. It's just a conversation we could probably have for the rest of our lives and really never come. We're just going to, you know, because we're not going to know the answer to things. Yeah. Yeah. No, you raise, yeah, raise a good point. I think often when people experience, like in a, like in the context of a car accident or a horrible disease, you know, people will say, well, God, you know, God saved me. It was a miracle. I got out of that car accident. Everyone else died. And they don't think about the fact, well, what does that mean for those that died? Does right. God not love them? Right. Why was God there for you? And, you know, and, and in the way I see, hear that stuff now, it's kind of like this, these are all human ways of trying to justify horrific events. You know, it makes sense that this is how, how we think. Um, and, you know, again, for me, Again, the, the cross is it's not a symbol of you know power as, as we understand power. It's a symbol of God's power being expressed through solidarity and love and self-sacrifice and the pursuit of justice and these kinds of ideas. But um, you know, I, I live with also the mystery of of believing that you know we don't understand the power of human consciousness and collective consciousness and these kinds of things. Can you know, can is there such a thing as mind over matter, you know, and are we participating in, you know, God's mind when we pray and can we actually change material? I don't know, but, you know, all I can say is what I think, what other people think and let you make up your own mind about these things. So, 
you know, I live in the mystery of it, but the more and more that I grow spiritually, the more I push back away from this idea of a God of power and might in the way that I grew up understanding power and might, because for me, it just doesn't feel healthy anymore. But, well, because it's all based on the stories of the good. Y- yeah, yeah. That's and, not God. And and I and I find it very problematic to, you know, teach, and I don't teach this anymore. If we just pray and believe enough and quote the right scripture, if we, you know, God will act. No, this is, the, the, yeah, the, 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 that's a horrible, I think, teaching. Um, it's, it's an oppressive teaching. But is there mystery here? Is, is there mystery? Absolutely, yeah. All right. Good. Good point, Emily. Raise a good concern. Somebody else. I just wanted to underscore. Um, I think like something that strikes me sometimes when I'm about to go to bed. Um, the chaos of it all is really scary. So I, you know do understand that impulse and, you know, the moral reprehensibility of God of the Old Testament, like, it's in a weird way, sometimes can be easier than, you know, sometimes you just get hit by a truck or you get cancer or it just, there's no rhyme or reason. Like, that is really, I just want to kind of call that out of, like, I understand the impulse and, I don't know. I feel like if I had a life or death experience, my impulse would be like, oh, you know, there was a reason why I was allowed to live. Um, that impulse makes sense too. So it can be really hard. I don't know. It has been for me. Yeah. Um, I like this theology that you preach and I support it and agree with it. But there are moments where it's like, oh my God, <laughs> the void. Yeah, no, you're... Yeah. And I hear you saying, let's have compassion for ourselves and others here. You know, it's easy to, you know, as you put it, kind of like disagree and, you know, call out that stuff. But this, it's it's human and people are suffering. And let's not forget that. And, you know, let's not demean that or say, oh, they're just weak or they're just naive. You know, people are suffering. And we should have compa- we can have compassion in the midst of this. And I think that's important. Um, that's what I heard you saying, Leanne, as well. I just really appreciate that corrective. That's good. Somebody else? Okay, cool, cool. Well, let us finish our service as we always do by saying our benediction together. And this is, uh, looks like you, oh, there we go. Thank you, sir. Let us say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Thank you for being here, everybody. And thank you to all of you who participate on Zoom. We don't want to forget about you and all of you listening to the podcast later. Thanks for tuning in. Go in peace.